This podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work by visiting PCAAC.org. Welcome to Gifts and Graces. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. This is Gifts and Graces. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Robert Kim and Dean Faulkner on uniting the church through church planting. Robert Kim is Professor of Applied Theology and Church Planting at Covenant Theological Seminary. Dean Faulkner is a church planter in Charlotte. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2022 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Kim and Dean Faulkner provide insights on uniting the church through church planting. Uh, The the purpose of the seminar, I I don't know completely how it's going to work. I'm going to be honest because Dean and I have just been kind of praying and working together, we cast a vision to be able to say, hey, as we think about our current time, it's, we're living in a polarized, fractured time. I think there's a, all the church plants uh, and church planners I have talked to have said simply, you know, I don't, like, you say something as simple as let's wear a mask or let's not wear a mask and half your congregation will leave. So the question is, in, in a time of such fracturing and polarization, how can we cast a, a vision of unity around something and I think with regards, not just in terms of a local church, but even in terms of presbyteries, presbyteries can often be a place in which there's infighting and division, et cetera, and things like that. And then even more so to, with respect to our denomination. And so one of the things we're just really trying to be able to say is, uh, is there a, a possibility to actually be able to cast a vision toward uniting churches, uniting our denomination with respect around one thing, which is church planning. The thing I want to open up with is this, and that it's funny because Drew actually said, hey, good thing we're late because you can talk fast. And for those of you guys who are just here, yes, I can talk fast. And for those of you guys who do wonder at Covenant Seminary, yes, this is how fast I talk at Covenant Seminary. And for those of you guys who don't know, there's actually a meme. The meme is uh, all the Covenant faculty and how you have to listen to their lectures, and mine is at 0.5. So just to let you know. All right, so here we go. Uh, what that said is I want to open up with just this idea. So at the start of the PCA, and we're coming up on 50 years almost, this was the PCO model that's been reiterated, but this was really something that was always supposed to be true of us as a denomination. Faithful to the scriptures, true to the reform, reform faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. And here's that, that last piece in particular, what I would say is this. At the very start of our denomination, what we were so committed to, both in terms of evangelism and church planting, was really that. It was saying the, the Great Commission propels us toward these two things. So as I talk, and by the way, I'm on the younger side, but older peers who have say, oh, you're part of the PCA. You know what the PCA is really great at? They're really great at two things, evangelism and church planting. And it's interesting when you stand in 2022, where sometimes you need a little maybe like shrug and be like, is this really what we're good at? 
And part of the seminar really, in essence, is to capture back, I think, what we were at the very beginning is to say, hey, what we were, in, in terms of the very beginning, is that obedient to the Great Commission, and things like evangelism and the expression of church planning were part of that. Uh, I will say the seminar, I think, in many ways models what we're hoping for. So Dean is at uh, RTS Charlotte. Covenant is the other institution that I think has church planning emphases. They have the church planning center. We have the church planning track. Uh, and we're, our hope is really this, is we want to raise more church planners. And I think if you're in this room, I don't need to convince you because that's the reason why you're giving up an hour of your GA to be in this room. But with that said is this, we're also trying to model to say that, hey, we don't have everything like we're not the complete like mirrored people. We will have our differences. We have our differences, I'm sure, on different theological positions. But we're friends and we want to support each other. We want to see both institutions flourish. And we want to see, in essence, our, our aim is not to say I'm trying to take people from RTS and he's trying to take people from Covenant. We're saying, no, we both win when we both do well. And in the spirit of that, that's what I hope you get as we talk maybe for the next 40 minutes or so, and we'll try to fill some questions. So, Dean, you're up, brother. So, Robert talks fast. I'm Southern. I'll talk slow. How's that? Uh, yeah, it's uh, great to be with you guys today. And uh, like a, like Robert said, we're really trying to model and uh, illustrate for you the importance of working together uh, in doing church planning. And um, and I want to begin our time just kind of reminding you some basic things. And the the thing I'm going to remind you of, of course, is the Great Commission. Now, how many sermons have you preached on this? How many sermons have you heard on this? I bet some of you guys in here might be working on the hundreds uh, for that. So for me to stand up here and bring up the Great Commission, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir in large measure, but I'll just remind us that this is where Jesus reminds us that God is on a mission and that God is busy doing His work and advancing His kingdom uh, through the gospel and particularly through the church. Now I would highlight a few things about the Great Commission here for you. And the first would be this. Uh, Jesus says, uh, uh, is among his last words of ministry in the Gospels, are calls to mission. If you do a study, in fact, of the last words of Jesus after the re resurrection and before the ascension, he hits home big time, mission, 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 in all the Gospels and in Acts. And Matthew 28 is the classic uh, text for that. Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And that's a bold statement. Holy smokes. You know, somebody says, after all that Jesus has done in his ministry at this point, and leading up, even after the resurrection, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And he, you're thinking, wow, what's he going to do next? He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. A couple things I'd highlight about this. Uh, first would be this. Um, you all know that the main verb, you've done your Greek or you've heard this, is uh, make disciples. And that going, baptizing, and teaching modifies the main verb of make disciples. So our thing is making disciples, making worshipers, making followers of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus wants us to do. So you know about that. Another piece I'd highlight is he tells us to make disciples of all nations. We're going into other places, even other cultures transcending and even breaking beyond our own cultures into other cultures, not say so we don't meet, meet our own culture or even reach our own culture, but we go there. And I might add, when you're in an American mission, the culture's coming to you. They're coming from all over the world. And so we make disciples of nations who are even coming to us. But I want to highlight kind of a, a couple important things here that 
you know, we get, tend to forget when we kind of blow through this. Um, and it would be this. The, the fundamental uh, thing about this you've got to ask is, who's supposed to do this making of disciples? Who? Well, the implication comes in this, uh, in that all of the verbs here, make disciples, baptizing, going, even teaching, are plural. You. Plural you. So for, let me just kind of unpack that for a little. For those of you from New Jersey, if you were Jesus talking to New Jersey folks, that would be use guys, right? Now, if you're from Pennsylvania, like my associate pastor, I understand that uh, that means you'd be saying Ewans in some way in Pennsylvania. Ewans. And, of course, you're from the South. It's y'all. Or maybe the better way to say it is all y'all make disciples. So implicit in the Great Commission is this whole sense that we are doing this together and that no one pastor who might be a gifted evangelist, one church who might be even good at evangelizing, even one presbytery, or dare I say, one denomination, is going to get the gospel out. And already you're thinking, well, Dean, you're saying the obvious, but that's where we got to start, right? We do this together. There's no one who can. Jesus implies it right there. Now, what's all that got to do with church planning? Well, here's kind of cool part. The church is implicit in the Great Commission. You've got uh, teaching, which you've got the three marks of the church, number one being teaching right doctrine, and right here in teaching. You've got uh, the right uh, administration of the sacraments, baptizing, and you've even got the implicit idea of discipline and discipling. There it is, the three marks of the church are embedded in the Great Commission. So when we do evangelism and discipleship, we make churches. That's the implication in what Jesus is saying. So when we're doing this thing of making disciples, we're making disciples and therefore churches together. Now I highlight this because uh, this is very important to all of us and how we do our missions in various ways in our own personal ministries and our churches, even as Presbyteries and the PCA as a whole. And I want to do I want to kind of illustrate why this matters with one illustration and with a cultural point. The first illustration is this. My brother uh, was a well-known and still is a well-known soccer coach in the Charlotte area where I live. And he's coached hundreds of soccer games uh, with boys and girls and won hundreds of games. He's been really good through the years. And uh, one time I asked him, I said, Trent, of all the years you coach soccer, do you ever have any really good players who like college material or even go farther? He said, yeah, I had a few. And then he said, but I had one that I had to really work with. The kid was amazing. He could score goals like crazy. But he was kind of a one-man show. And he really believed he could be a one-man show. And he said one day they were at practice and, and uh, the kid was taking the ball and going down the field and doing amazing things with practice, but even in games. But the result was the other players weren't getting involved. So he said to the young man, he said, hey, do you think you can score goals without the rest of your guys? And he said, actually, I do. He really thought he was that good. So my brother said, all right, here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand on the 50-yard line. I'm going to put up a team of 11 guys, including a goalie. And I want you to score on your teammates by yourself. And so the kid said, okay. 
And here's the thing, he tried to do it. He actually tried to score a goal on his own team in practice, one versus 11. Of course, it was impossible, he couldn't do it, and finally he realized none of us is as good as all of us. None of us is as good as all of us. There's something implicit in the gospel and the Great Commission that teaches us none of us is as good as all of us. And I dare say, guys, sometimes as pastors, sometimes as churches, sometimes as presbyteries, even, yes, as a denomination, we're awfully prone to being that kid who's trying to go down the field by himself. If I just figure it out and work harder at it and show my talent, we can do it. But here's the thing. You won't score that way. Now that brings me kind of to a cultural point I want to make in light of the Great Commission. Uh, what planning in a post-Christian culture can be like. Now I am going under the assumption, and I think most of you would agree, because we've been talking about this for a while, that we're living increasingly in a post-Christian age. Of course, like guys like Charles Taylor, uh, even long before that Robert Bellow, were talking about our age where... Uh, we are, in a predominant way, becoming very post-Christian. Now, are there pockets of Christendom around where Christianity still is the norm, even though the people in that community may not be terribly Christian? Yes. I mean, the South has still got its pockets in regular places, but here's what I would tell you. Be it in the cities, in the South, even, even in small-town America, Christianity is going away quickly. And the proof of that is in large measure with the nuns who are leaving the church, the next generation, who we can kind of see and empirically measure that they are leaving the church in large measure because they're post-Christian themselves. And by post-Christian, I want to be clear, that's a movement that is a reaction against Christianity. It is not, if you will, uh, like the early church, which was actually pre-Christian. That's sometimes an assumption, and you'll even hear it. Hey, we're entering the days of the early church. No, we're not. We're not because a Western culture is saying, we've done Christianity for thousands of years. We're done with that. And that's what's happening with today's young people. And we're seeing it more and more among our young people. So we are having these young people to, uh, work their way out, and what's behind that is something called expressive individualism. Of course, Robert Bella and Charles Taylor, among others, have talked about this. You've probably read all that stuff on Gospel Coalition, but the whole heart of, uh, of uh, expressive individualism is this, that in a Western, a post-Christian Western individualist mindset, people more and more are, are defining themselves against other people. Uh, you know how your teenager likes to individuate with you? Well, imagine whole people groups doing that, where we're always defining ourselves against something because we've got the better way. That is what the, the cost of postmodernism is. That is what we're walking into. And I dare say that's what we're sending our church planners into, even our young church planners. Now, the hard part about how we're doing church planning now, and this is kind of food for thought, especially for us Reformed folks who love the Reformation, love Reformed theology, is for the longest time, really up until recent times with the, the momentum of post-Christian America and post-Christian Western world growing, the way we did church was this. It's what Stefan Poss calls 
the better church model. The better church model. Now that started well, we would say, in the Reformation, where we were saying, hey, we've got to tweak our theology to get back to the solas, to get back to clarity in the scriptures in the Reformation over and against the Roman Catholic Church. Amen. But what happened is we've done that for centuries, since the Reformation. And the better church model works well to plant churches in a Christendom culture. Because here's what I do. I get together a a reform guy, or a guy with a kind of groovy vision of how he's going to do church, a new church plant. He lands in an area where there might be other churches, and he says, hey, my church is just a little better than these other churches because we're doing it this way. That's what's going on in the better church model of the Reformation. But here's the problem. That works well in a Christendom context where you can define yourself against, if you will, other traditions. But when people don't care about the tradition, it doesn't matter anymore. Let me give you an example. If you go and plant a church in a place that's very post-Christian, you say, look, this is how we're going to have this groovy new vision of, of, of church, or even we're reformed, they're going to go, what? Who cares? What difference does it make? And that's what's happening all over our nation right now. People are more and more, or less and less Christian, more and more post-Christian. And as a result, they're not engaged with the church, and they don't want to engage with the church. The old model of the better church is not going to work anymore. Now, it's not to say there aren't some places still, and I'm not saying don't plant reformed churches and say, hey, we value reformed values. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you can't bank on that to get your church started in a post-Christian context. So the question then comes up with what's the way forward in this? And I would say just a couple of things. The first is this. We've got to make disciples together in light of the Great Commission and what Jesus said. I need you and you need me. We need each other. And let's come clean. We all would do church very differently with our philosophies and ministries. All of us have our little angles and things like that. I do. But there's a place where you got to come clean and say, The Great Commission has got to be the center point. This is what Jesus wanted us to do in mission. And and the interesting thing is in our age, where there's a lot of expressive individualism, Acts 2 says this interesting little phrase about the early church. They had everything in common. Has that ever kind of driven you crazy that that's in there? They had everything in common. Now, of course, that would be they shared their resources and goods and things like that. But my old professor, David Wells, says it well. They had more than that involved. They had a common faith in Christ, a common Savior, a common destiny, a common salvation. They had been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. They had all these common things that they had to come back to. And that is going to be a crucial part of how we do mission together, is realizing how much we have in common in an age that wants to define everything against everybody else. The next thing we got to do to move forward is renew biblical planting by integrating our great theology in other Reformed and even PCA circles with ecclesiology, and how we do church and what we're doing church, biblically based. But here's the new twist. In a post-Christian age, you've got to in- inject missiology into it as well. This is what's different now. 
when a Christendom culture, I didn't have to worry about missiology. But now I do. Because worldviews that are popping up in the midst of a post-Christian secular age are, face, are, coming, uh, are, are what we're having to deal with every day face to face. And I can't say this enough. You cannot do and engage all this alone with all the worldly tribes that are forming and even the ways we in our church planning efforts can come up with our versions of expressive individualism. So, what are we learning while we're doing this mission? Robert and I wanted to highlight some things that you can take home with you, I hope, beyond just the theology I'm throwing out there. First to be this, you've got to, we've learned this in the PC, I've learned this from my friend Ted Powers, that the places in the, in the, uh, that where Reformed church planning are happening well in the PCA and beyond are places where they start with prayer. What a concept. Leaders getting together and just praying together, even though they might be very different in their philosophy of ministry, saying, how do we get more churches out there that will reach people for Christ? And it all starts with prayer. And embedded in that is just relationships, that we're spending time together, praying with one another, and seeking the Lord together. Second thing is we've got to create biblically healthy church plants in supportive ecosystems. I don't have time to kind of expand on this except to tell you this. Here's what I'm learning, and Robert's running into this too. With the young people who are coming to our seminaries, they're asking one question. If I do church planning, will I have support? Will I have support? And some of you are saying, well, of course they're going to get support. They're going to get money. I mean, that's what we said the PCA, right? We got money. We got people. If you want to do a daughter church, we'll send people with you. And they go, no, 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 I don't, I don't want to talk about money or people. I want to talk about how you'll have my back when my marriage doesn't go very well in the midst of this plant. I want to know how you will be there when I need a friend and I'm going, this plant is struggling right now and I don't, I'm, I'm having to unlearn some things in order to learn how to reach these people. Will you be there? This generation wants to know that you got their back. And if you want to attract people to your networks, to your church, to your presbyteries to plant, as future generations, you've got to communicate. Not only will we have your back, here are the things we have set up to get you covered when things go hard. The next generation is asking these questions, and that's because they want something that I think is good. They want health. And is that not the story of too many of us? I'd say that for me as a church planner, and I've planted two churches now. Health is the great challenge. Physical, spiritual, and emotional health. And we've got to start asking the question, how are we promoting the health of our planters and focusing on them when we put our systems together in our presbyteries and our churches? Last thing I'd say around this is you need to ask for help. This is what we've seen a thousand times is everybody will say, I got my Bible, I got my guys, let's go just do something. Just ask for help. If you like the way they're planting churches in a local presbytery or regional presbytery, go talk to them about it. Ask us at the seminary. We'll try and help you, although we have limits to what we can do. Ask M&A. They have expertise. Just get counsel. And you won't always like the counsel, but that's okay. If the Lord can give you some wise counsel on little things you can do, it will make a huge difference. Do not neglect 
to ask for help. Final thought, and we'll hand it over to Robert. And here's the thought. I was reading my friend Don Fortson's uh, book that he wrote on uh, Presbyterian history. It's the best thing out there right now. He wrote it as a team uh, with some other guys uh, around Presbyterian history in America. And I found this little quote from Francis McKinney, our first missionary in America around the Presbyterian church in the uh, 18th century. And this is what he said, talking about forming the first Presbytery. This is a part of our history. He said this, our design is to meet yearly and more often, and if necessary, to consult the more proper measures for advancing Christianity and for propagating Christianity. He knew that they needed support, that they needed each other, and that is a crucial piece of how we'll actually plant churches in a post-Christian ethos. Robert? Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, just to give you uh, some thoughts there for Dean and I. You know, so Dean and I are trying to spend more time together. He's going to be coming out to Covenant in uh, July for Assessment Center. And Lord willing, if they have the Assessment Center in Charlotte, again, I'll come out to Charlotte. Um, but just, again, trying to develop friendships across these lines. Uh, I want to actually uh, go back just really quick on talking about heritage. You know, a thought I have with respect to the PCA is this. So again, coming up on 50 years, but at one point in time, believe it or not, the, the PCA was actually a, a leader in church planning thought and practice, right? So when John Thompson and others developed the church planning assessment center in the early 90s, I mean, it was revolutionary. If you look at some of the research that was a part of his demon project or PhD project, I forgot which one, but his doctoral project. And literally, people were like, oh my gosh, this thing is so great. You look at Acts 29, all these other denominations, they looked to us and said, whatever you're doing in the assessment center, we need to copy it. So they came and they visited and they literally copied it. And we were influencing other uh, denominations in the Christian movement of the gospel, propagating this idea, and exactly here, this practice uh, that McKemmy is uh, talking about. And we were doing that. And I fear, at least present right now, we've kind of lost that mojo. And this is, again, with the call of the seminar. Is that, could we come back to recapturing and say, if we're really serious about the Great Commission, everything that Dean even had mentioned, this we, well, let's get serious about this idea that we can rally behind a vision that the same imperative of the Great Commission that led us at the very start of our denomination to plant churches is still true today, and that we can actually do this. And I'll try to give some data uh, with respect to it. I'm going to try to do a little bit of biblical stuff, a little bit of historical stuff, and then uh, kind of similar with Dean and some practical things. We want to end with also allowing you to ask questions if there are any questions that you might have. Uh, I speak fast, as you guys already know. I'm going to not read this entire text. Here's what I want to draw your attention to is this. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 3, the Apostle Paul actually already addresses divisions. And so I think the very divisiveness that we see of today is not something that's present, and I want to make sure we see this. Like at times, you may hear me and think, oh, Robert's just an alarmist. And I want you to hear by saying this. I'm not an alarmist. I think the reality is it's true. Is Scripture, even in terms of its pertinent message, uh, back in the day spoke to these issues as much as they're relevant today. The church has always kind of been polarized and divided, and yet here's the work of the Spirit and the work of the gospel. It's always to bring us back to unity. Right? The very things that Paul referencing here, right? this idea that somehow the church should be divided. I follow Paulus. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. In some ways, we can kind of do it today. Well, we have kind of maybe the Kellerites or the, the Youngs and the others. And say, these are the people we follow. But the real question is today is, you know, even as a denomination, are we true to so following Christ? And again, he reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 3 as well. How does the church get back to unity? How does it come around? And I would argue that Paul's message to the Corinthian church is this. You are God's people. You are his body. 
act really as you should as the body of Christ, which is part of this idea is what does it look like for us to be the body? And so I think everything that Dean had already mentioned is this thing. So I'm just going to analogize this in terms of what it looks like in terms of the body, right? So imagine for a second, as Paul has, has done in referencing in 1 Corinthians 12, if we are to be the body of Christ, well, the right hand and the left hand ought to be in concert with each other. And when we think about church planning, sometimes our efforts are, you know, and I'm going to say this, especially for the PCA, it's like, well, we're going to need to plant a reformed church because there's other churches there not really being what the body should be. And I think Dean did this well of trying to be correct political. Well, yeah, we need to work across the lines to be able to say, well, what does the body look like? So when we're dancing or we're moving, the right hand indeed knows what the left hand ought to be because why? We're one body. And what if it for us as a denomination that we could be able to say for the same reason that even as a denomination, we actually indeed are a body that represents to say the right and the left, I'm using those specific in terms of analogy, but the right and the left are not in opposition to each other, but that they work in concert with each other. So, for example, if you've ever done this uh, uh, exercise for youth kids, I was once a youth pastor, right? So, you know, a good youth training missions tool is simply this, right? Take your team, however they are, large they are, take a group of 10, and tie all their hands together, right? And so you tie all their hands together, and then you say, let's eat a meal, like spaghetti. It's awesome. I guarantee you, if you haven't done it, it works, right? And here's why. Because they're like, oh my gosh, my hands are no longer tied. How am I going to eat this meal? And the training exercise is, we're going to be as a team, well, we're going to need how to put these in concert with each other. And it's the best hour because, you know, at first they're just fumbling. But by the end of that hour, they're beginning to work together to be able to say, oh, we know how to feed each other and work together. Much of the body of Christ messaging is really that. How do we come alongside to be able to do that? So some quick thoughts, more historically rated, are this idea of the effects of trauma. Uh, so there's some uh, thoughts with regards to counselors that say the effects of trauma, uh, especially when you're born, are long-lasting, right? So like if you're born in trauma, let's say you're born in addiction, then more than likely that kind of carries with you and counseling will be ongoing. Uh, I have a 16-year-old daughter who for her first 10 days spent the the time in the NICU uh, because she lacked oxygen. Like literally she was fighting for her life. Her oxygen levels were like 25, 40%. The doctors were literally, she came out purple. I stayed with her. And then there's that kind of a personal narrative. We actually lost her second child before this. And so long story, long story short, like we, we were in that. At 16, now anxiety is emerging. So my wife and I, you know, we pray with her. We're talking with her. And here's the things that we're saying. We wonder, are her effects of anxiety, not just of the present, the culture and everything that's going on, but is it actually because of her birthing that this trauma, this anxiety, sorry, she was anxious about literally as a baby, not realizing this, fighting for her life, but does it still live with her and how to walk her with this? Now, the only reason why I'm sharing that is this. If we think about the birthplace of the PCA, how were we born? We were born in conflict. And I want to use that analogy as you think, for example, about Ukraine, about everyone who literally either has fl- or flown the country or you know, gone as refugees, that knowing of the fact that the effects of that war in a war-torn country, will have ongoing effects, which we continue to pray for. But think about what it means to be born in conflict. All we know is conflict. And in some ways, here's where, uh, at least in terms of a conjecture or a thought, if in our beginning, uh, in terms of our origin story as a denomination, that we began in this idea that we knew what we were fighting against. We were fighting against the bad guys. We were fighting against liberalism. We fought for the inerrancy of Scripture. We fought for the Reformed truth, etc., and things like that. And by all means, all good and right things. 
But has that been so ongoing that even to the present day, we haven't asked this question? And so part of my research was actually, in terms of my doctoral research, was actually looking at this book by Paul Sell, To God Be All, To God All Praise and Glory. And here is one of his statements that he said that was actually said at the first General Assembly of the PCA. And I love it because it's so pertinent, I think, for us to consider. It seems that everyone had known what they were against, but now they must decide what they were for. And we read that again because I think it's worthwhile to read twice. It seems that everyone had known what they were against, but now they must decide what they were for. And I conjecture a little bit, and I wonder, if at the beginning we were faithful to be able to say, we are want to be for the be- faithful, to the obe- uh, faithful and obedient to the Great Commission. And that was at the start where we began to at least surface say, here is a vision that we could rally behind. Well, maybe perhaps we need to resurface that. I'm going to draw, again, some anecdotes with respect to that. So we think about some of the trend lines for the PCA, and here's the thing with respect to this. If you haven't looked at some of this data, I think these data points are actually really important for us to consider, right? For roughly about 20 years, and here's what I'm going to argue. I would argue that those 20 years, or 26 years there, are roughly, and I say it's about maybe 2015 is when it stopped, were actually the height of what I would argue is the church planning movement in the United States, right? So if we were to document that, that his church historians haven't written about it, but I would document it something around there, where church planning was almost ubiquitous with the idea that if you're going into ministry, it's something that you consider. And so the heydays of 89 and all these other denominations saying, hey, we're getting into church planning. And again, what I said earlier, that we were front runners with respect to that. And here's the thing. We planted about 50 churches during that time consistently. That was 469 churches. This is the actual data. 469 churches uh, from 1999 to 2021. But hear this and make sure this is. We used to say that was a boast for the PCA, right? Hear this out. That's one per state. Okay, 50 states in the United States, right? 51 per state. But when you actually do the data, here's what it says. One church for every two years per presbytery is the actual result of our church planning efforts. The past two years, and these are all MA statistics, right, according to the report, 26 and 2020, and by the way, these are plus or minus one. I sometimes get the numbers wrong. But I know in 2020, that's 2021. My apologies for the typo there. But it's 16 last year. And because I help out with assessment center, I'm going to say this. The one in May at Charlotte, which we were, I would have loved to have been there because I wanted to see Charlotte and actually the campus and what Dean's are doing, was canceled. We're not faring any better in 2020. So that's live data for you all. Just simply saying we're not faring any better right now. And there you go, folks. So we're not doing any better. And here's the thing. I don't want to sound like the alarmist but I at least want to present the story or the, the actual reality of this, which is to say where I think we're at as an organization. So here's the thing. I, I'm big on, on some of these ideas of developmental life, cycle, life cycles. And so when you think about it, and this is coming from a business world, but a nonprofit organization in terms of like how it often starts, right? There's an idea, a startup, right? Idea, startup, growth, maturity. And then there's a point, and this, the reason why I go from the last slide to this current slide is to be able to say this. When there's a point of decline, an organization has one of two options to consider. They will either go the path and say, hey, we are okay with the decline and we're willing to die in decline. Or B, they can make a change and be able to say, hey, maybe perhaps we can go back, and this is the point where we bring this whole seminar together, go back to where we first started and the very things that we were so passionate about, let's be passionate about again. 
And I'm encouraging, especially for those of you who are here in this room, because again, I know that you're passionate about church planning, which is why you're here, is to be able to cast this vision, be able to say, can we be united? Say, hey, maybe putting down some of the arms, right? The idea in terms of what we've been fighting about. And to be able to say what we want to be for is this idea of a unity with respect to church planning. Unity as expressed, and I'm not going to go into this too much. Uh, it's coming from Irwin and all of his talks with respect to the idea of diversity. But this idea of unity coming together because we are, in fact, united as a denomination. We have, I'm going to say this later, more in common than what we have that which separates us. This idea to be able to say a rising tide lifts all boats. And here's the thing. When church planning begins to happen, this happens both in terms of the microcosm of a local church You'll see how it synergizes people when, it, when a new believer comes into your congregation and they begin to ask questions like you've never had before. My typical example I give is I remember doing a new com- a communicant members class and someone asked, like, hey, we were doing a, a series in, in Galatians, and someone asked, hey, Robert, uh, you, know, you keep talking about Paul. Who is this guy I want to meet him? And I was like, oh my gosh, like, that's such a great question. I have to stop thinking through that you know who Paul is. And that one person, the questions that they were asking were beginning to encourage others in the congregation who became a little stale in their faith to say, hey, I can help disciple you. And again, you know this as church planters, how amazing it can be that one church plant, and again, a church plant and a presbytery synergizes the presbytery because why? Because the presbytery says, hey, this is really cool that we have this young church. They're getting young folks and they're doing evangelism. They're doing discipleship. Hey, you know what? We can start doing this. And think about this in terms of, uh, with respect to us as a denomination. True of the denomination as well, that when we begin to see more church plants, that changes the face of the denomination in terms of what we're talking about. That what we're really engaged with is to be able to say a rising tide lifts all boats. That this vision of church planting really does that. And here's the thing with respect to it. I'm not going to convince you of this because you're convinced of this. Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. All the data that we see will simply say this. The harvest is becoming more plentiful because in that data that I didn't show is to say, okay, if we're not planting more churches, here's the other reality. More and more churches, especially in light of the pandemic, have closed down. If the gap before, which missiologists would have said, was really massive in terms of the need for church planting, was already present, the pandemic has only enlarged that gap to be able to say what? This is true. The harvest is even more plentiful. And I pray, at least for this sake, that this, whether stirring of the pot, imagination, whatever, et cetera, and things like that, that we might be able to do this to be able to say, let's cast this vision for our denomination and, again, for your presbyteries and your churches to be able to say that this could be true. Kingdom of God is the thing that we're out. I think much of the fracturing is that we are after our, our little kingdoms, lowercase k, rather than expressing this idea of the Great Commission, of the idea that the kingdom of God present here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, This statement that I think is important for us to realize is true, right? Which is there is more that unites us than that which divides us. And that was said actually by a British politician, but I'm just going to say this. When we think about the far right and the far left of the PCA, there's more that unites us than that which separates us, which is true. We have things that bind us together. We have Now, in terms of our understanding of Scripture, we have the confessional standards. We have the Book of Church. We have those things. Can we come together for such a time as this to be able to actually go and plant churches? I'm going to end with just, I'm just going to reference this. I'm not going to say it. Everything Rainer says, I'm going to say, take your grain with the grain of salt. 
he, I think he's the one thing, he, I would say this, he's the only person that's beginning to write and publish with respect to the post-quarantine church that I would just simply give that as a reference. Here's my last kind of couple of things I wanted to share, and then I promise I will end, and we can just engage in questions and answers. Uh, I want to share stories of how I think powerful this is in terms of giving a, a vision of uniting the church with respect to church planning. So again, uh, uh, I was working with the church, uh, a presbytery, I won't name them because I don't think they would like me to necessarily, but working with them, did a retreat, talking about church planning, et cetera, and things like that. So one of those churches decided, hey, you know what, Dr. Kim, you're right. We can do this. And I love this because they went back to their session and said, hey, you know what? We're like 120, I forgot exactly, but it's a 100 plus year old church. And they said, they realized, we never planted a church. And you know what they began to do? They began to pray. I love the fact that you uh, emphasize prayer. They began to pray and say, can we plant a church? And it, it just reminded me, thinking through, again, Abraham Sarah, right? The idea, like, am I so old, so barren that I, I, I can have a child? And as they began to pray and do that, they actually started planting, they're planting a church, as a, I think it's 120, a 120-year-old church that's beginning to plant this church. I said, praise the Lord that you finally rallied around something, a vision that honors the kingdom, that honors the Lord Jesus, and that you're actually believing in, in faithful promise that he's going to do such a thing. The other thing, I'm not going to mention this church's name as well, but when I was uh, the, the, the church planning coordinator in Philadelphia, so obviously somewhere situated in Philadelphia, uh, I will say this. It was, it was a cool thing. I went into the session. I cast a vision for church planting, and they began to say, hey, you know, Robert, you're really passionate about church planting. I said, yes, I am, and I really want your church to get involved in church planting. They've been involved in litigation over and over again. Like They've just been constantly bombarded by all these litigation scandals, et cetera, and things like that. And one of the elders pulls me aside after the session meeting. He said, Robert, I just really want to tell you a, a word of exhortation. I've been on this session for X number of years, and the last time I remember being passionate about being an elder here at this church is when we planted our last church 11 years ago. Thankful that you were here to ignite this passion once again. And here's the thing, anytime we can get involved, again, not so much in the weeds, but in these things that can distract us from this idea of the mission to which God has entrusted us to, this great commission as Dean opened us up with, I think it can lead us astray to be able to say, what are we here for? If we understand what we're here for, and again, the power of us as a denomination coming together, that, that level of not passion, zeal, et cetera, again, should unite us together as a domination that we can actually be for this in a brighter and a hope uh, better future for us as a domination. Thank you guys for your time. Thanks for your time. Have a great day. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.